0: Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. And my name's Sam. Joining us today is Magnus Tenegrin of Sweden's Into the Void podcast. Magnus has been in the music media, specifically with metal, for 15 years, including a lengthy stay with Slave State Magazine, one of Sweden's oldest and most read online zines for heavy music. In our conversation, we talk about the role of education and government policy in creating successful metal media, We talk about the development of the death metal scene in Sweden. We look at the changing landscape of music and news media. We talk about some of the reasons why Sweden has always punched above its weight as far as creative output. We look at some tastemakers in Sweden, including a label highlight. Finally, be sure to check out the playlist that Magnus has made for today's episode. In our episode notes, and be sure to recommend this to a friend. Without further ado, let's dive and get heavy.
1: Magnus, welcome to Heavy Hops. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
0: I saw a uh, refreshing glass of beverage in your hand uh, before we started. (laughs) What are you drinking with us tonight?
1: I'm drinking tap water, actually. Oh, lovely! <laughs> is that the color of tap water in the?
0: I knew there was a reason why I didn't like going to the eastern part of Sweden. Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh,
0: good, that se- good. that second glass was clearly a mirage.
1: So, then, so
2: then, what is this water? Is that what this is? This, this is, is, this is, is, is this Chicago, Chicago water.
1: water? Yeah. yeah, nice color on that too.
2: You know, is, is this a play on like? like uh the russian czar or is it like a play on
0: on star wars it's called deaths tar okay uh so this is interesting this is a uh josh deeth is the founder of revolution brewery Uh uh-huh and so uh yeah revolution um for magnus and for listeners that don't know they're like one of the larger craft breweries here in chicago and this beer, uh, D star is one of their more sought after beers. It's, uh, around 14% Imperial stout aged on, um, on bourbon barrels that people are like pretty stoked to drink every year. It just came out and every year should we, uh, we'll put it up yeah. here for you to check out, um, <laughs> cool can. yeah, uh, the black top too. I like a lot yeah, yeah, black, black is always good, right? Um, I always thought that there was they made this beer called the eugene porter right that was a direct nod to eugene debs who was like a very well-known american socialist in the turn of around the turn of like the last century and i always thought that that was kind of a weird thing because that beer was brewed exactly to style and I don't know if Eugene Debs was exactly a guy that was too <laughs> style in any way for his time. So I thought there was a, and I, so I thought therefore there was like a little bit of a disconnect between this idea of revolution and Eugene Debs and then doing something rather orthodox. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't know. anything. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I always got the impression there was like this Soviet Russia, um, like socialist kind of propaganda in their artwork and like in the names and all
0: that, like,
2: yeah, it, there, there's that total vibe there, you know, oh, bottom up wit doesn't
0: <laughs> say uh, anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that, it, sorry, Magnus, go ahead.
1: But how does it taste? That's a good question. Um,
2: we could go for it right now. Let's
0: see. Yeah. This, this tastes very good. I've sneak peeked this. Uh, I know that the barrel master, uh, Marty Scott was really happy that he was able to get like oh, wow, tons of Buffalo trace barrels this year. And that a lot of the barrels that were kind of foundational for their barrel age beers this year were barrels that three or four years ago would have been like the best barrels that they got. So they've really kind of upped their game in that way. Um, Unfortunately, Buffalo Trace is not sending barrels out to uh, to people, uh, I guess, nowadays because of the pandemic. Uh-huh. And so that's going to impact the barrel-aged beer that we see coming out next year mm-hmm. because that's a huge supplier of bourbon barrels for, uh, for producers. So that doesn't tell us anything about this beer, though. No. That's just extraneous facts. This is a... Uh this is awesome you can definitely taste the alcohol on it but
2: um it's very mellowed out by a marshmallowy kind of caramelized uh marshmallow flavor with i get like a graham cracker on top of that you know Mm -hmm. a lot of that s'mores characteristic it's really tasty
0: yeah it's it's just enough sweet just enough dry the finish isn't super long on it it's like chocolate marshmallow campfire without the smoke, but just like the feeling of being by a campfire, (laughs) I get, which is super, super nice. It's kind of what you want, or what I want when I drink these beers. Yeah, we
2: just cooled down enough too for us to be enjoying this, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's perfect. Perfect.
0: So. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. um, Well, you have, uh, I mean, you have a lot of uh, producers in Sweden that are making barrel-aged beers. Nowadays, you have like your Omnipolo that are making beers that are more like this. Um, do you follow the beer scene uh, in Sweden?
1: Not not that uh, closely perhaps but I have a sort of an interest in beer of course and uh, like to taste lots of different kinds. Uh, we have lots of microbreweries here in Sweden as well. Um, so sure I'm, I'm curious when it comes to beer and uh, there are a lot to taste of so. You guys may be quite thirsty now.
2: <laughs> That's our goal. It's working. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, next time yeah. next time I'm out your way, we'll uh, we'll have some beers together.
1: Yeah Acura? Yeah, yeah, maybe we can, uh, go, to can to Akira. go to Akira. Akira? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have you have to come over here and taste. I have one favorite though I can make a shout out to perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Apex brewery from around the corner where I live. Uh, they do really good beer. They're, the guys from a, a punk band called 59 Times the Pain uh, that was big in the 90s. Uh, they have started up a, a small brewery that they make lots of IPAs and uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, really good thing stuff. So that's Epix Brewery.
0: Okay.
2: Thanks. We'll have to check it out next time we're uh, in Eastern Sweden.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting.
2: Yeah. Um, well, let's dive in. Let's uh, let's talk about how we got to here. Um, how how'd you get your start in radio and media? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Oh um, well, I'll try to make a long story short, or uh, at least entertaining to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we will rewind uh, all the way back to 1984. Actually, uh, that I was about 12 years old then, and heard Twisted Sister for the first time, Stay Hungry album and there was an immediate love affair between me and hard rock and heavy metal. Of course, I think many Swedes in my age share that story uh, because as you might or might not know, Sweden in the 80s was kind of a dark, cold place uh, squeezed in between the Western world and the Soviet Union and we had two TV channels, uh, both owned by the government and uh, they had a show that uh, uh, where they put on the latest in music videos. And of course, I want to rock with Twisted Sister was a smash hit immediately. (laughs) So, From 1984 and forward, uh, I was all about the heavy metal. And uh, we had three radio channels as well, public service. And on one of those, there were a radio show called Rockbox, and uh, it was 45 minutes each week uh, on Saturday uh, Saturday night, uh, Saturday night, Saturday nights, sorry, Um, that you listened to and taped, and uh, I think somewhere around that time I started thinking that radio is kind of cool. Um, this was around 1987 or so. And um, well, as time went by, uh, uh, I listened to more and more music and uh, to the radio, of course. And um, in 19- 1989, I got the opportunity to um, um, join the community radio in the small town where I lived and do exactly what I have been dreaming about for a few years. So, um, between 1989 and 1995, I think I was there doing one-hour show a week, playing heavy metal and punk and all kinds of stuff that went along uh, by then. And um, it was a very interesting time playing music in radio. Uh, we, I think, we will talk about that a little bit later. But lots of new, interesting music coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Was, uh, was there as far as like joining a community radio, what, uh, entailed the process of, uh, becoming a part of community radio? Um, is this something like what my college radio experience was like where (laughs) you and a bunch of other people, uh, are trying to get on a show and then you use that as an avenue to learn about the radio world or was it a little less structured?
1: Uh, a little bit less structured I would say uh, it's kind of a special arrangement with the uh, community radio in Sweden it's uh, mostly um, what's the name in English now <laughs> uh, it's not a privately owned radio uh, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to talk about that later I think also is we have something called study circles and uh, those kind of organizations own much part of these radio stations so I went on one of those to make radio. So I got to learn the hard way to how to edit in, in uh, with a scissor and tapes. And stuff like that. <laughs> very old school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very. It was fun years. I cherish those years very much. And I remember them like really good times.
2: Mm-hmm. It's so funny now. You know, it's like you edit any audio. And it's just, it's, it's this, it's not real. It's just this digital figment that you're like, yeah, I didn't like that part. I'll just done, you know, (laughs) and it's, you just, you just splice it together on a computer. And so it's so funny, you know, even if you go back 20 years, you were still clipping little bits of tape and, you know, splicing that (laughs) together, which is
0: Yeah, I I was reading an interview with uh, Ira Glass, who's like a very well-known radio figure in the United States on our public radio, on national public radio, Mm -hmm. and he was talking about um, editing, uh, editing real in the way that you did in around the same time that you're referring to, and it was something that everyone had to do before, it was like a rite of passage was being the person that was involved in editing, and that um, most people liked that, uh, part of learning the most because they got into a zone and there was something almost like pseudo therapeutic about, uh, cutting and editing. And you kind of became one with the, uh, <laughs> with the program itself, like in this mm-hmm. weird sort of like metaphysical way, I guess. <laughs> did, did you feel any of that in any way too? What, what, why are the reasons why you like look at that time, like pretty fondly?
1: Well you had you had to plan your uh, editing very well <laughs> uh, and have it in your head and sort it out and uh, you, um, but mostly I did live radio, so that had its uh, ups, upsides as well, of course. Uh, I really liked doing the live radio thing. Uh, got a little bit more nerve to it, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I can miss that sometimes doing the podcast and stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, sitting here talking to you now it feels almost like we're doing live radio so um,
0: yeah Uh, getting into it it's something i mean uh we find that this is as close to live radio as we're willing to get in Mm -hmm. a way um and i think with like the with the video component uh it it makes it feel like you're in the room with us and it makes uh it makes all of this like very casual and i think that that's um something that that live radio didn't quite have but that podcasting does have i think that that has to do with like the transmission medium as well too in the sense that like you're not dialing and taking time like aligning your life with that program but Mm -hmm. rather like you're it is fitting your schedule and so that makes it a little bit more casual
1: yeah mm-hmm. it's not like when i was 14 15 years old sitting there on saturday nights waiting for rockbox <laughs> 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 and then at 1815 every saturday you turn on the radio and there was some fucking hockey game going on that made the whole thing delay because sports in Sweden always uh, was prioritized in the national radio stations.
2: Oh, that's everywhere. And certainly <laughs> hockey—that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Probably be
1: why I hate sports so much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Damn sports taking taking over our music. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, when uh, when did writing become a part of your kind of journalistic endeavors?
1: Well, I, I went to university and. Uh, there I got uh, enrolled in the student paper, uh, writing stuff. And uh, then when that was over, the study years, so to speak, um, I wanted to continue writing. So I, when I loved, still loved heavy music and uh, th- those things. So um, uh, I dropped a line actually in 2003, I think, to. Uh, Roban, as he's called, on Close Up Magazine, uh, which was the biggest and best, if you ask me, uh, music paper for heavy music. And um, they, had, they had kind of a punk ethos back then. So, of course, you're going to try writing for us. Uh, I'll send you some albums. And I mean, I mean, I have been reading that paper for that magazine for, for several years, so that was like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> uh, so I wrote reviews for them for a year or two, I think. Uh, great lear- learning experience. And I think that kind of set me off uh, to where I am now, actually, mm-hmm. because uh, once you get into that world. and uh, you get free albums and opportunities to speak to people that you never dreamed of speaking to It's mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. to get out uh, but then i continued after close up um, with slave state magazine um, which was a magazine on paper back in the beginning nowadays they are a website uh, with daily updates um, and i'm still there 15 years later so doing reviews and interviews from now and then. So uh, that's how I, uh, that's my writing career in short.
0: And you also uh, contribute to this publication called Doom Charts, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's un- the, the disclosure or lack of disclosure of the people that are involved in that publication <laughs> is rather interesting. Can you kind of lift the curtain on some of that for us?
1: I don't think it's that big of a mystery. Uh, It's a bunch of people uh, interested in heavy music doing different kind of uh, online publications and podcasts and stuff. Uh, Getting together once a month, (laughs) uh, dropping your 25 most listened to albums that month. Or less depends, um, and uh, we have this guy Bucky Brown who does the enormous job of doing this tally of of albums that comes in, uh, and produces this chart every month. Uh, I think uh, last chart we did we had 300 albums that was uh, submitted, uh, so. It's, it's not it's not such a big mystery actually mm-hmm.
0: um no and just to think that uh, a month could be 300 new releases is mm-hmm. pretty nuts I mean I remember uh, writing in when did like this would have been maybe 2003 or 2004 and you know we had maybe a hundred. Uh, At most, like new albums every month. And the whole process was we we thought this was very advanced for the time was we had like an FTP that was uh, mapped with our website where all of our like digital assets were and all the albums that we that all of us got individually as promo albums went up there and then all of the journalists had logins or like folders for whatever they had to download and listen to. And that was how they got it. Um, this very before, uh, <laughs> before people were using torrents, I think we mm-hmm. had people on 56 K connections then too. So <laughs> God bless them for, for
2: <laughs> what are you doing? Well, the album's downloading.
0: When'd you start it? Oh, 30 minutes. Yeah. Ago. And mom, you can't <laughs> use the phone mom, for like we- a month now. <laughs> um, so it's the, the proliferation's pretty insane, but also I think in order to commit yourself or for people to commit to listening to that much music really consistently, uh, is a true, uh, it's, it's beyond just like an interest in the music, but yeah. it's actually, uh, a labor of love.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of. I think we. I don't know. Maybe we are about thirty or thirty-five people that contribute every month to this list, uh, this chart. And um, I mean, I get the promo album links from uh, from Bucky, who sends them out, uh, because people are labels are submitting to the Doom Charts, of course, because they want a chance to get in this insane amount of uh, albums that are being listen to and uh, i mean i get i think i don't i'm lying when i th- say i get about two or three emails a day uh, from doom charts with albums that people want us to listen to i can't listen to all of it of course some people seems to have the time doing that i don't know how they do it uh, but there are an enormous amount of music being made out there so yeah happy where, where I am. I get, I mean, I get more music than I can ever consume <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> send to me and listen to. So it's insane.
0: And, uh, keeping, uh, keeping with the present for a moment before we, before we jump back into time, um, mm-hmm. you're also, uh, an important part of into the void, uh, which I'm thankful to have been on that show on, uh, Uh, having been interviewed by you in the past when we were talking about Scorched Tundra. Um, Mm -hmm. For for our listeners here who may be new to uh, Into the Void, can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, how it came apart, uh, who's involved, and what you can expect uh, if they were to uh, hint, hint, go listen? Um...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, the podcast is actually... of a continuation of the radio show i made back in the late 80s Uh, i kept that live back in my head uh, in some ways and when i moved back from uh, after my studies at the university and uh, i've been uh, forming a family and building a house and you know all that stuff that you do when you grow up uh, i got back to the community radio thing uh, because i moved back to the town where i came from um, and started over doing the same fucking radio show I did 50 years earlier. <laughs> no, no difference in the concept. And uh, but the big difference then was that you can put it online, of course, um, mm-hmm. so that people could hear it afterwards. And uh, for some reason, I don't know why and how they found me. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with the Grip of Delusion Radio. A station that was active a few years ago uh, they kind of discovered my little radio show that i put out and um, asked me if i wanted to join this online radio station and of course you get two hours every two weeks playing new music uh, why not and uh, it was there that i i got to know um, Electric Beard of Doom, uh, Pat Harrington, uh, and uh, Doomed and Stoned, Billy Goat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing led to another. And uh, from streaming uh, this thing online, uh, I made a podcast of it that you can download and listen to. And uh, got to do lot, I have done lots of interviews with underground bands uh, over the years. This was back in 2014, I think we officially this In this format that we have been doing it. So we have, I mean, the first really big stuff we did was interviewing Monolord before they even had released their first album. Just hearing the Empress Rising track. And did an interview, one of the first interviews with Thomas, I, I think. And stuff just has rolled on from there. So it's basically it was basically me doing this podcast uh, for a couple of years by myself because I really like doing it, uh, kind of a do-it-yourself fan scene thing, but in podcast form. And uh, back in two thousand eighteen, I think I felt that I, we need at least one other guy on board this so we can, because we, there was so much to do. So I re- enrolled a guy called Svempa, Alveving. Uh, you can find him on Instagram. He's called Doomsday Jesus there. And, um, <laughs> yes, it's kind of a funny story because I discovered him and uh, got to know him on Instagram because he put up just loads of music tips. And uh, well, one thing led to another. We talked a little bit and then I said, why don't you try it? And he has never done anything like it. So I sent him off doing an interview with Brant Bjork for his first assignment. (laughs) Kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, since 2018, uh, we have been doing this together. And it keeps rolling on. Every second week, we release a new episode. So that's how the podcast Into the Void Mm -hmm. got to life.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I've seen... um... I've seen some uh some good some good interviews and definitely a lot of personalities that have that are coming on the show that mm-hmm. I know our listeners would be would be interested in. They'd be in. stoked about it. I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I I still can't believe I, when I look back sometimes scroll back on the uh, on the webpage and looking at the guests we have had on this little podcast. I, I mean, god. I don't know how we did it, but getting Dave Weindorf talking for two hours about his whole career, uh, with us. You can blow my mind every time I think about it, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's the way it has turned out and it's just, I'm just enjoying the ride right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I think there's definitely something to be said for those personalities being people just like us too and Mm -hmm. appreciating you know being treated as such and for them to enjoy a good conversation will keep them on for a long time Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and i will will say this also that uh, of course getting people like dave winder from on the show is is great but that's not the main purpose of the podcast i i want to I will always choose the little the small bands uh, from the underground uh, talking to them. and that's what is what we have been doing for all this year also very much. Uh, that's the whole point of the podcast. Then you stumble upon these opportunities because you get we, I have quite, we have quite good relationships with the ANRs and the people that do the promotional things. Um, I mean, if you have someone working uh, with Ipecac Records, you, of course, you ask if you can talk to Trevor Dunn of Mr. Bungle, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. example. And you get it in an interview because we have a, quite a good personal re- relationship with a promotion. Uh, so you, it's, a, it's a great adventure, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that it's really, really important for uh, the smaller and up and coming bands to have a platform. And uh, without a doubt, I mean, that's part of the function of why, uh, shows like this exist and why mm-hmm. into the void exists as well is that, um, we are giving a platform for the smaller artists and by blending them with people like, uh, like Dave or with uh higher, uh, higher profile guests, uh, it's important. It gives everyone a platform mm-hmm. and for those smaller bands, they don't have a lot of the resources available to them. Um, even though the internet has been a little bit of like a great equalizer in a lot of ways. Um, it's definitely important for, uh, all of us to stick up for the smaller bands and to mm-hmm. use the opportunity that we have in broadcasting to share their music and share their personalities with others.
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, you can get your music out there pretty easily, but there's a lot of music out there.
2: Right. 300 albums this month, right? And that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's you have to sift, you know, it's easy to get on the Internet, but now everyone's on the Internet. So sifting through all that, you know, it's that's, I think, uh, where I think
1: think this is where the podcast and the online magazines play a very important role Mm -hmm. uh, being this Someone called me a curator of taste. Uh, <laughs> just doing that, the, the old radio DJs did. I mean, put, getting these albums, picking out the good ones, playing it, saying this, you should check this stuff out. I mean, that—that that is one thing an algorithm really can do, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so, so many ways we could go with that, but I, I, we have a lot of really cool things that we want to talk about and, uh, I want to jump in if that's okay. Um, so one of the things that, uh, people like Thomas and that so many bands that I've worked with from Sweden in the past talk about as, important kind of junctures in their life that told them getting into music would have been or be felt like a more realistic, uh, situation for them, uh, was, uh, opportunities like these like study circles. I think we would kind of refer to them somewhat yeah. as like musicians unions here. Yeah. Um, but also like for musicians to be able to take time away from school, to have extra classes, there's probably tons of, uh, musicians that I know that skipped that math or that science class (laughs) so they could have the extra, extra music lesson, um, subsidized practice spaces, all of that. I feel as though a lot of those resources existed for people that grew up in the eighties and the nineties in Sweden. Did those types of opportunities exist for people that were interested in other things like journalism or science or, uh, things that you were interested in?
1: Uh, yeah sure uh, as, I, as i said as i said doing the radio community radio thing that was a study circle that uh, was a learning thing <laughs> but but you, you had fun doing it and uh, it didn't cost anything mm-hmm. so uh, yeah sure and uh, uh, you are absolutely right that these study circles and opportunities to study music in school, I mean, we had have, we a have uh, public-funded uh, music school that everyone had the opportunity to go to without paying anything extra. Uh, I tried it back in first grade, uh, playing the flute for two uh, semesters, but, well, that scared me enough to not pursue any musical career.
2: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. uh, But those who survived the flute stadium, the stages (laughs) of that (laughs) uh, thing got to play guitar. And I mean, talking about people at my age, uh, some years over 40, uh, I mean everybody has done that uh, in uh, some way. So the music education, so to speak, is quite strong uh, in these generations. And these are the guys that... Uh, are big part of the Swedish music export industry today. Mm-hmm. Just ask any one of them what they did when they went in, in the lower grades in school. You will hear the same story. And then of course, as you said, the practice spaces and so forth. Uh, the same organizations that did the study circles often had uh, rehearsal rooms and so so forth and recording studios also. So you can easily rehearse with your band and then play record and demo uh, quite easily. Um, that thing has gone away in many ways now, uh, unfortunately. So
0: what are, what are some of the, why have some of those things gone away or what has taken them away? Is that part of like a, a political shift? Is it part of a cultural shift? Uh, what, what, What could you uh, attribute that to?
1: Well, I don't know. Uh, Sure, it has been some sort of a shift in the politics, of course. Uh, People tend to pursue other stuff, Uh, not uh, getting engaged in kind of these study circles together with other people, not in the same way that uh, you did back then. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. Uh, maybe egoism. I don't think. I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, you can say that. I I think it's sad in a way. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, people are doing more. Obviously, doing more music now than more now than ever. So yeah, I don't know.
2: Uh, I I think I found it interesting when. um I forget who I was talking to when uh, we were over in Sweden last, but um, the public, as you were saying, the public education system for music in Sweden and in in, uh, Copenhagen and Denmark, too, is uh, Mm. it's insanely more funded than any of the arts in the U.S. And you find a lot of arts programs in the U.S. are actually stripped from public schooling and kids actually Mm. don't unless if they use it as an elective, they don't actually get a chance to even be exposed to it. Mm. And I think you have, you have economic barriers of entry with, with instruments too. Right. Um, But I mean, if you want to transcend music and talk visual art too, you know, there's, um, there's that uh, field of art too. And it's the same, same instance where there's just no funding for it in our system. And, I think you see it reflective in our culture, honestly. Uh, Like if you look at the U.S. in a broad spectrum, we don't have as much of an appreciation for the arts as you see in Europe. And especially there's not uh, people who have firsthand experience with any form of art either. And so we're almost in this situation where we're, we're becoming a society without any... Our culture has become... It's become food and beverage. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now we're in a pandemic and everyone's like, fuck, I can't go drink. I can't go eat. Yeah. What do I like? Everyone has lost their purpose to live now, you know? Yeah. And I think it's reflective of what we've decided to put our little amount of money that we do fund to education towards.
0: Yeah, you only get what you you only get out you what you get, put in, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> but, I, I think that that is uh, that's definitely a part of it, and I think that um, when you have like uh, austerity measures that go into education that shift what classes are available or how much funding there is, then. D- generally the arts are like the first arts and like home ec and anything always because those are also courses that have like really high overhead right you have to buy all these instruments you gotta like buy like it, it yeah
2: it sucks i mean like for me i'm a musician and i chose the path like it's almost you're presented in when you get to um fifth sixth grade you're presented with this path you either you go down the music you go down the visual art or, you know, you decide to go down math or science or whatever you, you basically have to pick and whatever Mm. you pick, that's, that's your path, you know? Um, especially that young too. It's like, well, what if you want to try it out one year, you know? And if you don't like it, you want to switch, but it's, you're almost like you can switch, but especially with music, it's this path of if, if you start in sixth grade, it's expected for you to build those abilities and build those skills till you graduate high school. And then usually you go on to college for that too. Mm-hmm. And that's like a whole nother thing.
0: Or you start a band and tour in America and get huge, right? Yeah. We no. didn't get huge, but <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: far from huge. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what kept you to what, what, uh, what was more interesting for you, Magnus, uh, in writing about music, um, or being involved in music in the way, in the insiders outside way than being a musician and being involved in the art, uh, directly, or do you see journalism as being directly involved in the art in a lot of ways?
1: I think my journalism at least is being involved in the music more directly. Um, uh, I do it because I hear so much music that I like that I want the world to know about and uh, that's why I do it um, and that means that I w- will uh, promote certain record labels because I think they do great stuff uh, I will promote bands that I discover uh, and quite uh, not very objectively maybe sometimes but uh, that's the way I do it and uh, yeah. Uh, I hope I am an active and good part of the underground music scene.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious about your experience in like the 80s kind of underground world of music. And so when we're looking at like the media, music media, or like maybe underground music media of that time frame, 80s, like early 90s, how influential what and and I guess how and in kind of what ways I know this is a big question but Mm. how and in what ways was like fanzines from like the U.S. or Germany or the U.K. like how influential were those in the development of like Swedish extreme music and Swedish extreme and the like journalistic world that comes up around it or were these things kind of parallel in the way that they all came about at the same time.
2: Could I actually build or like maybe consolidate that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I want to, I want to break it into, because you mentioned earlier Sweden was on the edge of the Soviet Union, but there was also the huge Western influence. So yeah. I kind of mo- more want to know how much Soviet influence and how much Western influence kind of bled
0: <laughs> into this extreme music scene. Can you teach a history course? Yeah. On- <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if I can answer that question uh, so uh, as well as you might want me to do, but uh, I mean, Sweden has always been torn between, I mean, we have had a socialist, social democratic uh, politics going on here for, I mean, the whole 19th century and, and up in, uh, almost up until now. Uh, so we have that at the same time. Uh, I think Sweden has always been fascinated with the USA and American culture, and I mean, uh, I don't know if you know that we have a huge interest in American cars from the 50s and 60s. -hmm. Uh, And people almost cosplaying living in 1955.
0: Oh, the regare culture? yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, so we have some uh, sort of a love affair with uh, the U.S. on the one, on one, on the one hand, and but we want some sort of safe socialist uh, uh, society where, where the state takes care of us, uh, and somewhere in that, uh, in that whether to those two meet uh, there are music and uh, culture happening Uh, so we have the the rehearsal space funded by this by the society and uh, we want to do extreme rebellious music hating it I mean, we, we had quite a big punk movement in the late 70s that hated everything that the Social Democrats did. Fuck them um,
2: for taking care of us, man. Yeah. They want to pay for our education, <laughs> our health care.
1: I'll come. Uh, but give me my money. Yeah, I, yeah. Give, I, <laughs> I have the right to it.
2: That's my money. <laughs> <laughs> pay for my space to record this album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I
0: mean, uh, is there is there? Em, I mean, how much of that is uh, is an emulation from what's seen elsewhere, and then uh, like a recontextualization within what's happening in Sweden and response to the specific factors that are occurring uh, at that time? Uh,
1: not really. Can you elaborate a bit about that? The-
2: well, that was like, so the seventies was a huge era for punk, uh, everything from the sex pistols to the kinks. And, um, who's the other, uh, the clash mm-hmm. who obviously the, pretty sure all of them were from England, which was going through very tumultuous times. Um, you don't really see, I mean, my, my seventies Swedish history is kind of sparse, so maybe I'm wrong. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't really think you see all that much, uh, tumult going on in sweden so where does this anger and rebellion come from uh from those bands in that time
1: uh, maybe i think it was boredom <laughs> you know, li- living in the projects uh, just feeling alienated from everything uh, i think that was a big part of it the line No Future by the Sex Pistols was kind of a feeling that I think many young people had in Sweden back then. Uh, The industries were going down. We had the best years in the 50s and 60s, uh, like creating wealth for everybody. Then stuff went south uh, in the 70s. Everything was gray and brown. Uh, So I think that was some of the big Fuels for the punk movement in Sweden, then by the late eighties, seventies, sorry. Then of course we headed into the eighties, where you were supposed to get rich and everything was colored pink. (laughs) You were drinking champagne. Like sort of a counter reaction to the boring seventies, I guess. But still with a socialist democratic mindset.
2: (laughs) Oh, so important. yeah, definitely. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: um so let let's address the the kind of like the second part of that question, which is, yep. um the uh was what could you say kind of about the uh the evolution of Swedish like music media at that time? Um, did things become a little bit more people centered or was it still like, uh, kind of driven and overseen from uh, from above, so to speak?
1: I think what's more people-driven, if you're talking the underground scene of mm-hmm. music. Um, as I said, we, we didn't have many radio channels or TV channels that could promote heavy music. And uh, I don't think we had that many magazines either in the mid-80s. wrote about it i think most of it came from imported issues of kerrang or metal hammer Uh, people read about what was new Mm -hmm. and so the uk
0: so the uk was a big part of uh of that kind of like we'd say print underground intelligentsia so to speak
1: (laughs) yeah and i know lots of people it was sheep flying to london from uh, from sweden so many uh, flew there and bought records and brought home. And I know there were some record store owners that went to London back then and bought everything they could get their hands on and sold it when they got back. And uh, in Stockholm uh, and Gothenburg and Malmö, uh, the big three big cities.
2: Was there like a restriction on that in, the, in Sweden or was it just, it just wasn't making its way to, to Sweden at the time?
1: Uh, I think some of it made its way to Sweden, but uh, the big companies didn't, wasn't interested, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one of the reasons. And uh, well, then you had the fanzines, of course, Uh, I think many uh, exchanged letters with people they saw in these ads in the magazines they bought and started uh, tape trading, I I mean, in the late 80s, that was the big thing. Uh, Sending demos across the ocean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) getting three demos uh, in return. And I mean, that's a big part of how the Swedish death metal scene started, uh, when they started to uh, send demos to each other uh, and discovering all of these death metal bands and developing their own sounds here in Sweden and in Stockholm and Gothenburg. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same here, you know, all the thrash movements, East, West Coast, you know, tape fans trading tapes, fans, Yeah, you I, know. I, I, I think that's the biggest thing with the underground movement is it's not really pushed forward by any higher entity. It's more the fans trading what they're really into, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I kind of... Uh, Music media and metal media loves to look at things kind of through binary lenses because it's so easy to always portray uh, things in that manner. And I kind of, and when we learn about, w- when we're children and we learn <laughs> about Swedish metal history in our, uh, oh, in ma- our excellent music in education, in our music courses, classes yes. in sixth grade, uh, <laughs> we learn, <laughs> we learn about, uh, Stockholm death metal and like, uh, D beat. And then we learn about like, uh, melodic death metal from, uh, Gothenburg. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's like a, a relevant lens to look at things through? Or do you think that that kind of, that there's more to it than just that in the way that there's much more to American metal than Bay area thrash and Florida death metal? <laughs>
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, of course, it's two very important uh, things you're uh, pointing at. I mean, Gothenburg and Stockholm in the late 80s, early 90s, huge impact. But I would also say that uh, the hardcore movement in the north of Sweden, uh, in Umyo, the town of Umyo, where you have refused and Abinanda mm-hmm. and all that, they, it was kind of a, they were far away from the south of Sweden. I mean, it's. I don't know, it's way up in the north. (laughs) And they are, it's even darker and even colder up there. And uh, I mean, they are doing their own thing. The vegan thing that went on (laughs) parallel to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But looking back at it now, you understand that these hardcore kids, the impact they have had on the Swedish music scene is quite huge as well. I mean, sooner or later, all of these things blended together <laughs> and started feeding on each other. And I mean, the whole 90s alternative rock scene uh, also exploded after death metal kind of faded a bit uh, in the mid 90s. So I think we have it, it's those those three things, I think you should have as a... Uh, foundation if you want to understand swedish heavy rock and extreme music
0: i think another one too is breach yeah fuck! <laughs> i love breach <laughs>
2: that
0: band's so yeah. good well i think yeah. that's that's one of those things where we can always kind of point to all these exceptions from everywhere and one of the big things i i always think about when the like trope of Stockholm Gothenburg being the way that you look at everything <laughs> comes about is I think of like, uh, Üme, uh, precisely like the the movement up there. Cause it's very informative to what was happening in the rest of Sweden over a course of time and probably had like a completely disproportionate effect and impact compared to how many pe- actors were in it and how mm-hmm. isolated it was from everything else that was happening in Scandinavia too. But I always wonder about uh, like the south of, we're diving a little bit, but like the south of Sweden, because that is like a huge engine for Sweden uh, economically and a huge population uh, like lives in Skone and in the southern part, but you never hear about the impact of metal from that part of Sweden, and you certainly don't hear anything about metal from Denmark unless it's one member of a band called King Diamond. Or, yeah. dare we say the whole beat? Oh, yeah. do you say them? Yeah.
2: Well, they're slowly being taken over by Americans at this point. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah.
1: Do you have I any mean, insight into that? <laughs> no, I, I can't just agree. I mean, I, I have I can't uh, I think that all the things that happened in Stockholm and Gothenburg kind of overshadowed everything else. Uh, I mean, if you look at it it in an international perspective. So I can, of course, see that these two cities kind of were louder than everything else. uh, But at the same time, I mean, the Stockholm death metal scene, if you want to be honest about it, it was very short period of time that it really did something new. I mean, can it be between 1989 and 1994, maybe, uh, that it was really, really interesting. Then it just started to copy itself. And uh, there are a million bands using HM2 pedals. And uh, the same thing with Gothenburg, I think. Uh, It was a a little bit later on they came along. but. It was the same kind of life cycle for that so by the end of the 90s i I think the most interesting stuff was done but it's what people remember Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: i do think though i mean we talk about this mass worship uh out of stockholm i think they're like for me they're bringing a revitalization to that stockholm death metal sound
1: yeah um, yeah, they are awesome. I'm not saying that b- it's bad, but <laughs> you, you, you kind of heard it before, right? We have, a lot, we, have, we have. I agree also that we have a sort of a revival of the Stockholm death metal sound at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots and lots of bands that are doing great stuff. I mean, I love Swedish death metal as much as anyone, <laughs> and. Uh, hearing these new bands doing this stuff with better recording techniques mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's just great so, yeah so more power to them mm-hmm. uh,
0: yeah absolutely and i i the reason why i kind of bring this up as well is that there's like a certain age group and generation that um participated in this uh stockholm and gothenburg kind of thing it really was people, it was that time frame and the scene. like, even though the, these cities are like, you know, three hours apart, if you take the fast train, I don't remember, I don't know how long it took then, but if it's a car <laughs> ride, you're talking like seven, you know, five sure. to seven hours drive. But these people spent a lot of time together too. Um, if like, I've, you know, we've had Mikel Stane on the show and I've spoken to a lot of people from there and these scenes were actually pretty well connected because these people spent a lot of time together, uh, doing like small shows and things like that. And the same with, um, uh, maybe to, a, to a lesser extent, but still a relevant point is, uh, some of the black metal that came from Norway and the black metal from mm-hmm. the Western, from the Western part of Sweden too. So I think that uh, that, that's why I, that's what begged the edu- education question is that I think that that's all, it's all kind of intertwined, uh, with experience of music from elsewhere combined with really strong musical education. And then that punk backdrop, uh, fr- uh that maybe they listened to, uh, you know, in the early eighties and formulated into their own music in the mid to late eighties and nineties.
1: And the thing is, I mean, getting that punk rock ethos and do it yourself attitude, I mean, uh, you get really good at, at taking care of stuff, I mean, <laughs> making things, making things happen. And I think you can see that uh, to this day, uh, that many of those people that was involved in the Swedish death metal scene, they are still around doing uh, other stuff. But uh, they are there. Well, the same thing with the punk people from the late 70s. They are in the music industry uh, doing st- things. And they know how to the run the ship, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they, they, they grew up with it. They have that drive that makes things happen. Mm-hmm.
0: And as far as, like, other aspects of the underground music infrastructure, specifically, like, labels and all of that when did we begin to see uh some of the smaller like record labels come about that were uh supporting those efforts of those underground bands or was that labor of releasing a lot of that music exported to germany or to like underground labels that existed in the rest of europe or america
1: i think you've been- I mean, taking an example like uh, the House of Kicks uh, in Stockholm that uh, released a lot of the death metal things. Uh, You have a close connection with Entombed. Uh, They are called sound pollution these days, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's the same people that does it. Uh, They had a huge impact, I think, uh, and still have uh, on the extreme music scene, and uh, I think there are more examples that I can't bring up to my, to my mind right now. But uh, of course, I think it was not fairly domestic affair, so to speak. <laughs> um,
0: fast forwarding to today, um, you know, we talk a lot about the bands that are from Scandinavia. And we talk a lot about, um, it's always easy to highlight the musicians, but there's always like an infrastructure behind them and local labels are always and imprints and zines are like a super important part of that. Um, one that, uh, on the back of kind of what you were saying about house of kicks and sound pollution, a newer example that I think of is suicide records, uh, in Gothenburg. I think they do. Uh, Roger does like a fantastic job. Um, Uh, I've been able to work with him on projects in the past, and the the output has gotten stronger and stronger, and the roster is pretty phenomenal at this point. I know that there's going to be at least one album from his repertoire that's on my top list of this year. Uh, Who are some Mm. other kinds of people that are a part of that world that we should be paying attention to?
1: Well, I wasn't going to bring up Suicide, of course. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> they, they them, but but they, they have grown to become such a big force uh, of the underground music scene. I mean, speaking of integrity and feeling for quality, and I think they drive... It's, it's one of the big energy centers of the Swedish underground scene at the moment. They have an, Just ridiculously uh, strong fall release schedule um, this year Mm -hmm. uh, i just dropped my jaw when i saw and heard Um, but of course we have uh, lots of small record labels also that the the good thing here is i think they they support each other very much so they it is they are building a small ecosystem uh, around each other. And not only the record labels, uh, I think the gig promoters we have, uh, now of course they are suffering pretty bad, but they are there uh, Mm -hmm. and they are closely connected. So they support each other very much. Um, But then of course we have, um, if you want to talk music media, we have lots of, of podcasts that brings up music uh, doing interviews with people not just into the void uh, we have the online scenes that are doing lots of stuff and also the i mean it's not just the swedish affair anymore uh, we have it it, it isn't to the most part i think an international thing which is i think is great because then you get the influence from other stuff from other parts of the world um, so I, I, we don't have so many Swedish online, online fanzines in that sense, but I mean, you see where you discover the new Swedish band, it is on the obelisk and it is on those kind of sites, uh, you find them. Um, was that the answer to your question? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just looking for some who you thought was were kind of movers and shakers in Sweden at the moment?
1: Yeah, well, you, you have to check out Majestic Mountain Records, of course. Uh, it's a one-man operation, really do-it-yourself thing, done with just a passion for good vinyl releases with great bands. Not just uh, one kind of music, because Marco is... Running that label, he uh, he will release whatever he thinks is good. So, he releases Stoner, Doom, Death Metal, whatever. Always in excellent package, packaging. So, uh, Majestic Mountain Records is one of those you need to uh, keep an eye on. And then, of course, you have the track fighter guys. They have a, your, their own record label, also Falsorama Records, mm-hmm. releasing some kind of interesting stuff besides their own music, of course. Um, and uh, well, that's uh, you have the Sign Records as well, um, also releasing very interesting stuff, uh, kind of more mainstream rock, perhaps, but in an underground kind of way so that's those record labels you need to keep your eye on i think mm-hmm. and then you have ocean records in in the south of sweden as well mm-hmm.
0: yeah i think it's uh it's always been amazing to me as someone that um has always had one foot in sweden and one foot out of sweden uh how Uh, amazing Swedish bands, the media, the record labels, everyone really kind of uh, comes together in a way so that Sweden really punches above its weight, not qualitatively, but just based on the fact that there's fewer people in Sweden than in the Chicagoland area. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And you have that type of tremendous amount of artistry. Um, You have like a crazy level of support from underground and like all of, all of this infrastructure that's pretty amazing for how few people live there. Um, that's always been one of the things that uh, has made Sweden like larger than life to me in a way is because there's like, everyone is an, is a, uh, is a little bit of, I wouldn't say like a, an, an influencer, but everyone's like very, uh, it feels like so many people that are in the scene are involved and in a disproportionate mm-hmm. rate just because of how small the country is. Yeah.
1: And I think uh, part of that also, I think is Swedes love for using new technology as well. We are very good at using the new digital ways or new, they're not so new anymore, but uh I think that also, with that at the same time, somewhere back in the head of people, I think that study circle thing still exists as well, mm-hmm. and the working ethos that uh, you do the rehearsals, you record your demos, you do it, uh, you know, with, with good quality and so forth. Mm-hmm. and uh, then you have the infrastructure to support it which makes it lots of easier and i i get amazed as well i mean for a while i thought there were a new stoner band standing in every corner of the street corner in <laughs> stockholm playing <laughs> the next uh, dope smoker uh, album <laughs> 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 so uh, still amazes me how much music there are produced in this little small country up here in the north. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. It's all great. You well. uh, you promised some curveballs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what are... Uh, I, I heard I, no curveballs. Yeah, and I told you how the curveball was my famous pitch as a uh, middle school pitcher. So I'm curious as to... Uh, are there any surprises that that we should be getting from you right now
1: <laughs> no i want i want to i want to talk a little bit about for uh, when i think about it the dangers uh, that are emerging at the horizon and the possibilities uh, that are presenting itself now when we are in that state of the world that we are um, because i i've seen i've been doing this podcasts for six years now and I have seen how the conditions have kind of changed uh, a little bit for doing it Um, when I started out doing this record labels hardly knew (laughs) what a podcast was and why it was important for them to submit albums to us and offering their uh, bands for interviews and so, so forth. I noticed a small change in the attitude now where the podcast scene, if you want to call it that, is beginning to become this part of the industry that you are depending upon. I mean, it's not particularly strange if you see that, like in Sweden, that Close-Up magazine has disappeared. Mm-hmm. They need another outlet, but I think there is a little bit of danger to it for podcasts. Uh, having to do things they maybe don't want to do but uh, in one way or another getting forced to do if they want to continue having stuff on their shows.
0: Is this uh, kind of in reference to uh, featuring content uh, for underwriting opportunities?
1: Yeah, I would imagine it, it can be that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's something you have to kind of keep your eye on Mm -hmm. and uh, try to keep, I mean, it's great to get the recognition, of course, I mean, there are a lot of talent out there doing podcasts, amazing people that does great stuff, but it's kind of hard staying true to the original ID, perhaps sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you started out doing. So you have to remind yourself, why did I start this podcast?
0: mm -hmm. I I appreciate that perspective because I think that we're talking about a whole arm of the music industry has disappeared when we talk about the disappearance of radio and we Mm -hmm. talk about the disappearance of print media, right? Mm -hmm. So... um you're looking at not just like job loss, but media, but like, pr- uh, product presentation opportunities, um, that are lost. And so the industry is going to naturally look for those opportunities elsewhere and what a better ground than a, a media world that has a lot of influence like podcasting and then a world of people that are, some of many of whom are pretty new to the music industry. And so it's very easy to, I imagine, for a record label to say, hey, here's this like marketing budget that we used to have for our non-existent college radio uh, <laughs> arm or like, like, like CMF specifically or, uh, you know, whatever l- other programming initiatives they may have had okay, we need to put that into radio because it's music and music needs to be played or talked about in an, in like an audible fashion. Right. (laughs) And so I imagine that they think that, 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 that influence can go into people that haven't been in the industry for a long time for people like you and I, we can see this stuff pretty regularly and we can't we can't also kid ourselves and say that this didn't happen in print media or in college radio either. Um, so obviously the practice of advertising for, um, story coverage was very, very common and became increasingly common as print media, uh, went into the sunset. And on top of that, I remember, uh, college, ri- uh, my experience in college radio was um, mixed, I would say. You had very, because we were monitored by the FCC, there were all of these, um, you know, we had to have, like, different introductions. You had to have uh, advertising content. That was people that were actually, like, funding the radio show because or the studio, the, um, yeah. There was all kinds of local funding for the Mm -hmm. radio station. And then on top of that, we had our program directors, uh, who got to choose the six things that we could play. So that we could play from. So I think for the two hour show that we had, there was maybe time for three songs that are three, three to three and a half minutes. Uh, of our own choosing. Otherwise there were, you know, we had mandated a certain number of songs. And so I know that because the FCC isn't monitoring podcasts, and this is speaking from an American perspective, yeah. um, that there's more freedom just owing to the lack of regulation on the medium. But I am concerned about, um, underwriting and influence and then, the kind of shallow externalities that occur out of that as a result. So there's a lot of like monkey see monkey do when mm-hmm. it comes to the media. And so when, uh, a smaller operation may see that the biggest people are doing this, then they're going to emulate that. Yeah. And, um, that's a massive problem because then the biggest people continue to have the influence, that they may have when it was Hit Parader or Metal Maniacs magazine, but that wasn't really a voice for anyone except for the labels that could that could afford to advertise there. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess I kind of want to throw this question back at you then. So, I mean, for the long term validity of this, then do we have to maintain this sort of like uh, clandestine uh, underground? Sorry. (laughs) I I was looking to use that pun at some point today. Um, Do we need to remain, maintain this like kind of clandestine nature, just like your community, like your community radio may have had, or like my zine had? Um, Or do we accept that there's going to be influence just because uh, that's the nature of this industry or any industry as larger players become a part of it?
1: Well, I think the biggest difference now, uh, difference now is uh, accessibility to technology to distribute these things. So I think both can exist, uh, of course. You, you, I don't see, I mean, of course, it's great people can listen to podcasts and uh, mainstream culture will always uh, adopt underground culture in, at, at some point in their life culture, but uh, I think we can, of course, continue to have these underground podcasts as well. I hope so, Uh, because there are room for both. I mean, I can enjoy big corporate podcasts as well, but I also want my underground stuff uh, done by people that hardly know how to do it, but do it with some passion. Mm without any economic interests or hidden agendas or marketing plans or whatever Uh, just interviewing small underground bands from the north of sweden like i do sometimes Mm -hmm.
0: well i think um i think this gives us kind of a good note to close on in some way and that is for younger people or for people that aren't as experienced that are getting into music media um or for listeners that want to kind of support underground media in some way, uh, for the creators of it, what is your advice? And then for the consumers, how would you like to, what would you like to say to a consumer to get them to support the right thing?
1: Oh, that's a very easy question to answer. Not. Um...
0: <laughs> We're all about layups at, at uh, Heavy <laughs> Hops here. <laughs>
1: My advice to people who want to do this, I mean, supporting the underground scene. Uh, there It's pretty easy to start a podcast or do a website writing about music, or for that matter, use Instagram and social media to uh, make stuff happen. I mean, look at Marco, who owns Majestic Mountain Records uh he, he was one of the big uh, influencers, if you want to, on the underground scene, just by telling which album you should listen to. Uh, no better way you know, to influence
0: so, people than to tell them exactly <laughs> what to do, right?
1: Yeah. And then now he, owns, he runs a pretty successful uh, record label with big respect. And I think that's how you can start doing, if you want to work as a uh, underground medium, so do the same thing i mean you can record your podcast on a mobile phone these days uh, putting it out there without as long as you have some sort of internet connection so try it don't be don't be afraid to fail Uh, Mm -hmm. just do it that's my best advice i don't know that's how i have done it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i have no clue what i'm doing so i'm just trying Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that it's it's important to let your passion guide you. And if you have if you are passionate about underground music or you know uh anything else that's artistic and that's a little bit below the uh the waves of mainstream, you, you know, you find a way to express your interest in some way, whether Uh, It is something like starting a podcast or writing an article for your high school newspaper, Uh, like people who really care about things, find a way to express to express it. I just think that I, uh, I, I agree with you that you just have to not be scared of failing and you have to not be scared of what other people think because the artists that are creating this art feel the same exact way. And you have to channel that in yourself.
1: Yeah. And you need to be a little bit stubborn as well and just continue (laughs) doing it and not giving up. But if you, if it doesn't happen in the first year, it might happen in the second year. So Mm -hmm. just keep on doing it because sooner or later people will catch on to it, I think
0: yeah Mm -hmm. there's one more thing i want to i want to add to this too and that is um and i said this uh i said this last week when i was on the uh, inside the beer temple beer uh uh, insiders table um when you're looking for music or if you're well let's say you're looking at beer and use that as like a lens of looking at music as for looking for music too the advice I always give people when we're talking about how you find beer is, uh, this isn't necessarily the case for the and Belogit, but I think you can you can know what I'm talking about is, when you're in a store, don't look at the end cap displays. Don't go to the cold section right away and look for those things that are in those places because marketing money has dictated that they have that space. Mm-hmm. Look in the aisles. like First of all, commit time to it so that you're taking your time and you're reading through things. and You're going in there with the mindset that I'm not rushing in somewhere and rushing out, uh, so that you're devoid of an experience instead, like, you know, pick things up, look at labels, read things. Don't be scared of things that are from other countries or that are in other characters and, you know, listen to something or try something, take a risk on something that you may not, you may not have otherwise but having that experience can be really really amazing and it can be a negative experience you could Mm -hmm. say like oh this this beer was horrible i i i but now you have a new frame of reference for what you think that horrible tastes like in the same way with music you may find a, a type of music or like a specific subset of metal that you may not like right now but you own that record now and you can go back to it in five years and it may say something totally different from you. Mm-hmm. Unlike beer, <laughs> records don't expire unless you right. fucking spill something on them. <laughs> so they're always going to be there for you. I was actually at my, um, I was uh, at my folks place recently while they were away and I went back and found a bunch of promos from 2004 and I like just blind grabbed like a fistful of them and took them home and there were about half of them I gave like really mediocre reviews to but I oh, listened no. to it now and I was like man this is great so <laughs> you know that's the beauty of music is that it's something that can that's with us for a long time mm-hmm. now you know with bandcamp and with uh, spotify there's ways that you can access stuff for free so we're spoiled in the way right. that you can't open a can of beer for free Correct. um so yep. take, take a risk, like support a band and you have the music forever. So it may be something that speaks to you at a later point than is right now.
2: And like yep. to build on that too, you know, if you find a band you like, listen to an interview with that artist, listen to their influences, listen to what they're listening to in that interview and go, listen to us, like listen to us, listen, listen, listen to, Magnus. to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like take, if you find you enjoy uh, what an artist plays, take their influences to heart, take what they're enjoying to heart and give it a try. You, you'll you usually find that you dig it, you know? Um, yeah. It just takes a little bit of exploration, like you said, on, on the listener's part to yeah. try and find yeah. the things that really speak to them, you know?
1: That I would say is the best advice to the audience if you want to talk about them as well. Uh, I mean, as you said, uh, it doesn't cost you anything to take a listen to a band these days. But it's, on the other hand, it's very easy to support them if you want to, if you hear what you like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am a big band camp junkie and I I can spend hours on that site just kicking <laughs> my way uh, around that site, discovering new music and everything I don't like, but that I like, I can easily just pay what they want for it. Or sometimes they let you decide what you want to pay for it, even better. And... Uh, Show them the, that appreciation, I think. Leave a comment. Same thing with podcasters. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing makes a podcaster happier if you get a comment or a rating. <laughs> uh, just take... It doesn't cost you a dime to say something, something nice if you like what you hear. Mm-hmm. That's m- more worth at least to me than any uh, ads or financial uh, support for my sake. Mm-hmm. I get happy by the feedback. Yeah. Um, so, so take that time. It takes you about 15 seconds to write good stuff to someone. Be nice.
2: Mm. Cool. Be Nice. I love it. Uh, be nice. Can be cool. nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, Magnus, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really, really fantastic. And also, um, Thank you for putting together the playlist that uh, folks can find in the episode notes. Do you have any uh, any insight as to what's on this playlist?
1: Oh, it's kind of a journey, I think. But uh, from (laughs) my perspective of how heavy music in Sweden started, uh, through my own experiences of heavy music, and in the end, there are some uh, advice what you should listen to from the modern Swedish heavy underground scene
0: excellent Sick. well i'm looking forward to it i am too cool mm-hmm. all right well awesome thank you so much magnus and everyone please check out uh into the void uh podcast and we'll include some notes uh include some links in our episode notes
2: yeah thank you yeah. so much for joining us uh thanks again magnus and we'll see you all next week
1: oh, thanks for having me yeah.
2: Stay safe now you mm-hmm. <laughs>